Hi, I'm so glad you're listening. I hope you and everyone you love that you're all well and that you're finding ways to stay connected in this strange and new moment. I want to fill you in a bit on what's going on with Hashivenu. First off, Sam Walks, our wonderful editor and producer, and I are both working from home. I'm really grateful to Sam for figuring out ways for us to continue to create Hashivenu outside of our usual cozy little studio in suburban Philadelphia. And I'm also really grateful to Rabbi Michael Fessler, who creates the website that supports our podcast. Just a little bit of lifting up the curtain. We try to keep up a pretty regular schedule of recording episodes, and then we figure out what's the best schedule for releasing them. And we had an episode teed up for release last Friday, but we didn't think it was quite right for the current moment, given the ever-increasing realities of living, hopefully healthily, in a time of pandemic. So we're doing a bit of juggling, and we're going to bring on an episode we recorded a few weeks ago with Dr. Amit Ravital, a clinical psychologist who specializes in treating trauma. Amit and I belong to the same minion, the same prayer community, and at our Kol Nidre service this past year, he gave a beautiful Devar Torah, beautiful teaching on moving from despair to awakening, and he offered strategies that he uses to support an orientation toward joy, even in the hardest times. So his talk that night from that night was turned into an essay for Evolve, Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations. And it was included last Friday, March 13th, in Reconstructing Judaism's inaugural virtual Shabbat box. And you can find links to both of those resources on the website that supports this episode. We recorded a really thoughtful conversation with Amit a few weeks ago, and the themes of Yom Kippur came up often enough that Sam and Amit and I all decided at that time that we should wait to release it until the high holidays. But those themes of Yom Kippur are about the awareness of life and death and making choices in light of that awareness, and we've collectively now decided that this would be a good time to share Amit's wisdom. I want to let you know, I'm also going to record a special mini episode without a guest that will release soon. And we're in the process of scheduling some new interviews that we plan to get out pretty quickly. And we promise to bring you all the amazing folks we've already interviewed at the right time. So thank you again for listening. And we're really excited to share uh, a meet at this time. Send us emails about what you need um, right now or what you'd like to hear in the future. And if you can, please take a moment to rate us. It really helps us to boost our listenership. And more than anything, take good care. Gratitude reminds us that we're okay. Mm -hmm. It reminds us that in this moment, with everything that's happening, we're actually doing fine. And that could be in the middle of a severe illness. It could be just the gratitude that you woke up. Right. And that when there isn't medicine, that there may be friends and community. Mm-hmm. I'm Rabbi Deborah Waxman, and I'm so happy to welcome you to Hashivenu, a podcast about Jewish teachings on resilience. I'm so happy to welcome Dr. Amit Ravital today. Amit is a clinical psychologist in private practice here in Philadelphia. Welcome, Amit. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Oh, it's so great. It's great. I want to explain um, how you come to be here. Uh, Amit and I are together. We have the, uh, I'm going to speak for you, but I think I have the blessing to be a part of a really powerful 
and supportive minion, a prayer community, uh, Dorshe Derech, which is um, itself part of a larger synagogue, Germantown Jewish Center, in the Mount Airy section of Northwest Philadelphia. And um, one of the ways that Amit and I started this conversation is that we together led our minion. It's a, it's a, a, a lay-led minion, and we together uh, were significantly responsible for our Kol Nidre experience last fall, together with my wife, who, who um, co-led the service part with me. And Amit gave an incredibly powerful, incredibly evocative uh, Devar Torah that evening. Um, and uh, that Devar Torah has been uh, captured in writing, um, in an article on our website, Evolve, Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations. And I'll share the title with you. It's From Despair to Awakening. Um, and we're going to talk about some of the things that he discussed uh, in that Tvar Torah and that, that he's experienced in his practice. So um, let's get started. Thank you. So I've set the stage a little bit for last fall at, uh, at Kol Nidre. And you know, I think the invitation to, uh, to the folks who, who deliver the teachings is whatever you think is significant, whatever you think is useful, whatever you think is uh, constructive for folks convening on this holy and powerful evening, you know, coming presumably with humility and prepared to, you know, to open our souls and, and move ourselves toward repentance. Um, and so I'm just so curious about how, how it was that this powerful teaching emerged for you. Well, so um, I have never given a Kol Nidre Dvar before, uh, a talk on uh, such a uh, you know, holy and solemn uh, day in the Jewish calendar. And when I was invited to um, offer this talk, I hesitated for a little bit and uh, then I sat with my hesitation and really went into some of the, the, the practices or tools that I use and I teach with my clients and I try to embody in my own life. And that is um, when something makes you anxious, um, don't retreat right away. Just stay with it a little bit longer. And as I sat with the invitation, um, I, I felt an urge to actually say yes, even though I had no idea what I was going to share. That's an incredibly powerful teaching in and of itself to, to sit with the anxiety as opposed to, to suppress it or to dive into the phone or to uh, dive into other activities. So. Oh, well, there was a big temptation to say, you know, let, let, let me pass this cup. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, somebody else who's more articulate and more versed in Jewish theology can certainly do, uh, you know, a much better job than I can do. And um, thank you, but no thank you. Mm -hmm. I had every inclination to do that. But uh, yes, yeah, sitting with it, something else opened up it, that that fear voice softened mm -hmm. and then um you know something else emerged it says you may have something to share mm. and uh let's see how it goes and uh don't worry too much about it and i chose to listen to that voice instead i i, I think a lot about it one of the things i love about this podcast about the hosting this podcast is that i um, yeah, I think I, I get to bring my rabbinic education and I get to bring the breadth of my experience as a Jewish communal leader, but I'm here significantly as a learner. And there's so, there's so much that I, I gain from, from conversations with guests on the podcast. And I feel like that's the shift that happened for me that 
that evening of Erev Yom Kippur, where I I was leading, and um, you know it's an it's a it's a small and intimate community, and I've been a part of it for more than twenty five years, almost thirty years at this point. Um, so I, I I don't feel the hesitation that you you described the the anxiety because I I have been a rabbi for almost twenty, yeah, more than twenty years now. But that said, th- that moment when I I stepped back from leading and into into my seat as just a Jew in the pew on this holy night. At that moment, you're no longer a rabbi. Exactly. I'm, I am there just as, as an individual, as uh, hopefully as one of the sinners. That's what we say before, before the Kol Nidre prayer, that we have permission to pray with other sinners. And then to, to, in that role, to listen to the, the wisdom that emerged from, from that voice that you listened to. It was a very, very powerful um, experience. And so a lot of what you talked about was about making a shift from despair, about the same way you were just talking about sitting with anxiety, you talked about, which can be fleeting. For some of us, it can be persistent, but can often be just fleeting in, in, in response to a, a one-off situation or a, or a transitory situation. Here you were talking about a, a deeper despair about systemic in response to systemic challenges and to abiding pain. And that, you know, that, um, that sense of despair, uh, I have been living with for most of my adult life. Um, I, from, from my years as a teenager, I, for some reason had this awareness, this knowing of just how fragile, um, our global political, economic, and ecological systems really are. And it seemed uh, as if people just want to run this world as business as usual. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's been kind of the sense for most of my adult life, uh, watching politics and even watching people in social change movements and being involved in some of them, that we are uh, perhaps trying to clean up the corners or the edges around something messy, but have a really hard time looking at the heart of it. Mm. And uh, when you don't look at it, then the despair that might be there just festers. Mm-hmm. And I found myself doing that for um, a good chunk of my life because honestly, systems are breaking down around the world. And uh, you know, if if you don't know how to be with that, then you wind up just distracting yourself and going into anything but that, mm-hmm. which is what I think a lot of us do, myself included, have done that. So it's important to be aware of what one is in despair of, um, to really do our best to look at it straight on if we can, and then to find a way to be at peace. Right. So that's the critical pivot, you, is, is that what you were talking about, uh, is that paradox of acknowledging the deep pain, the despair, the breaking down of systems, the uh, the failure of paradigms, uh, how we understand ourselves and our relationship to the world and our relationship to other people without new ones yet articulated and opening ourselves to joy at the same time. And that, think- that, that, was, the, that, that was the critical insight of, 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 your, of your teaching. And I think joy is essential to find the, the the darker the despair, the more important it is to find moments of joy. Mm. Otherwise, we're lost. Yeah. And so um, maybe you can help me out here because it seems to me that there is that very paradox in um, 
in Jewish teaching, right? Which is about um, the the need and the uh, even the obligation to find joy in hard times. I think that's exactly right, and that I think is that that's the premise of this entire podcast. Which it's not a coincidence that we started conceptualizing it in early 2017 when. The, that breakdown was just manifest in, in every in every way, shape, and form. The way I saw the world, um, and my that recognition that uh, embedded in Jewish experience and deeply immersed in Jewish teaching is is this recognition that we acknowledge the pain and yet we choose life, we choose joy, um, and that our ancestors lived in incredibly precarious times and found ways to center joy that Shabbat was not simply about cessation of work, but also an opportunity for festive meals and finery and the best that we had, even if it was very, very little that, you know, that the wedding ceremony, that the brokenness was acknowledged in the, in the shattering of a glass, but that the, but that, that the um, celebration was, was prioritized, you know. So, so sometimes it was the with the happiness in the foreground, um, and sometimes it was with the weaving in of the sadness at a happy occasion. But that there's just just so much, uh, and it goes. I would, I, you know, we we see it, it from the earliest uh, of, of Jewish teachings. My one of my favorite verses in the Hebrew Bible is from Deuteronomy, I set before you a blessing. I set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life so that you may live. And that impulse toward, um, I mean, here it's, we're talking about life versus joy, but I, I think that act of choosing life is precisely... I think life, life, can, life contains joy. When you're really living right. fully, that, there's an element of joy right in there. That's right. And that if we are making a choice, then... Choosing joy is one of the way one of the ways that we can affirm life. Yeah, so let's let's talk about this a little bit because it may seem uh, almost preposterous on the face of it to ask people to choose joy when their personal life may be breaking down. They may be dealing with a breakup of a marriage. Um, they may be. Um, coping with, uh, you know, severe emotional symptoms from early trauma. Um, they may be having uh, financial or health stressors that are really uh, weighing them down. So what do we mean in the midst of that to say to somebody, um, choose joy? Right. I mean, I would add to that in addition to those um, individual traumas, like, I mean, I, I talk to a lot of people who, are, who just feel like they're addicted to the news and they're utterly despairing from that. Their household might be in order, but they're they're struggling deeply with their relationship to the larger to the larger environment. So just to add that into it, and yes, yeah. so, so so that there's so much there's so much there that's breaking down. Um, right. Yeah, so we we don't even have to enumerate. <laughs> right, right. So so that's the conversation, and I want to acknowledge that. Um, you know that that we're we're doing this dance between um, psychology and and Jewish living, Jewish experience. Um, and we're going to go back and forth between them. Um, so how do you help people to pivot toward making a, a choice toward finding joy? So, um, and that's, that's a great question. I think the first thing is to realize what we do have a choice over and what we don't have a choice over. Mm -hmm. 
um, because at any given instant in our life, we have no choice about the circumstances of that life. Mm-hmm. So right now, if, uh, and I think this is one of the examples I, I used, it's a little silly example I used in my dvar, but right now if I'm planning a picnic for the weekend and on the day of the picnic, it rains, I don't get to choose whether it's raining or not. That's out of my hands. Similarly, um, you know, I might want to sign my kids up for a very good school that's just perfect for them, but then it turns out they don't have a spot for my child. So there's these moments where um, we're left without a sense of choice or agency in the world around us. And I would say, in fact, every moment is like that in as, in as far as the world comes to us moment by moment pre-made. It shows up in every moment with a certain configuration. So you wake up this morning and, you know, the weather is what it is, the people around you are what they are. They're given to you. You don't get to script them in at any point in time. Mm-hmm. And so we actually have no choice about anything. Right. Except for how we choose to respond. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it turns out, I think, uh, it, the more you look into it, that there is a universe inside that one sentence which is that in choosing how we respond, we really get to choose everything about who we are. Mm -hmm. That we can respond to these difficulties with frustration. We can respond with despair. Um, We can respond uh, quixotically. We can say, I know that this may be a fool's errand, but I'm going to start a nonprofit that's going to address this particular issue in my city. And it may or may not take off, but we have a choice to start it. But every moment, we, we can take what we're feeling, we can take what we're struggling with and find another response right next door to it. It's, um, so, I, I mean, in, in your devoto, you give the example of the picnic and, and, and the rain, and then you talk about the farmer and how, you know, how the rain... Um, maybe a blessing. Right, maybe a blessing. Else. And I remember many, many years ago when I was in rabbinical school and I was living in Israel, and it was a freakishly warm and dry winter. Which meant that every day in, in in what was supposed to be the raining season, I would leave my apartment to bl- blinding sunshine, which was incredibly lovely, except that the rainy season is when the Sea of Galilee fills up again. And so that in that instance, actually, like, you know, trying to have the added, the biggest possible perspective um, to even welcome the rain sometimes. Yes. And I, it sounds... It sounds to me like actually that might have been an easy thing yeah. uh, in Israel in the winter because people recognize how important the rain is, right. uh, more so than in a more you know, uh, temperate climate like uh, uh, Northeast uh, US. Right. That's exactly right. Um, but the bigger challenge there may be to bless the non-rain. <laughs> right. Right. Knowing that, okay, the, the sea is not going to fill up so much and it's going to mean arid times and crops may suffer. How do we bless even that? Right. And that's the biggest possible perspective to really release ourselves into not needing to know how it makes sense. So we're talking about perspective and choice. What do you think the role of practice is in supporting this? I know that the more committed I am to my gratitude practice, which I tend to do as part of a Jewish practice of using the, the morning blessings and the, the morning blessings for gratitude. And I've talked about that in other podcasts, the more committed I am to that practice, the easier it is for me to have the more expansive and the, and the less reactive and the less self-referential view. 
and the the more distant I am from that gratitude practice, the easier it is for me to just um, the more likely I am to just retreat into uh, a more granular and usually sometimes a more selfish and sometimes a less happy or a less um, capacious. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you use the word reactive, which I think um, uh, is right on target there. Gratitude reminds us that we're okay, that we have enough. Mm-hmm. It reminds us that in this moment with everything that's happening, we're actually doing fine. And that could be in the middle of a severe illness. You know, it, it could be this, the gratitude that you woke up. Right. And um, that when there is a medicine, that there may be friends and community mm-hmm. to give us solace. So gratitude is really just here I am and uh, I can choose to be thankful for the things I focus on and I can focus on things that are good, knowing that there's plenty that's painful. Uh, this past Shabbat, I was uh, part of a small group we we chanted together and we started off with a chant um that repeats the word hineni again and again um just here i am here i am here i am and uh, we did it for probably about 10 minutes uh, and it's um you know it's not so comfortable sometimes to to be to focus in that way it's it's not always it's uh it's easier to put our attentions someplace else, whether it's on another person or I was uh, reflecting, someone asked me um, recently how I soothe myself. And I said, I realized that for me, distraction is, it's, it's not, it's not really soothing. It's a, it's a pivot. Um, And it's, 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 it's take, I think to take the attention away from that, which is hard, even if bringing my attention there might get me beyond it somehow. Well, so this is the paradox, I think. Um, it's one of the, the, one of the points I was making in the Tavar is that uh, sometimes we need to distract ourselves from what is painful. In fact, doing, um, doing our gratitude practice is a form of distraction away from the things that are painful and stressful. It is shifting our focus to what we choose it to be on. And so distraction can sound like uh, a negative practice. Oh, who wants to be distracted? But really it's about whether the distraction is intentional and to what purpose we're using it. Mm, That's so helpful. I talk sometimes about I have a tendency toward a constructive uh, uh, procrastination. And I I, I appreciate your uh, uh, recovering distraction for me. So. Mm, mm. Sometimes, sometimes the way we cope with being really, really, really frustrated, angry, or, you know, in grief is we have to go in and give the kitchen a thorough cleaning. Totally. I've done that. I've done that. I spent like an hour getting every nook and cranny and it shines afterwards. And it's a distraction. Yeah. But it's okay. I remember at my sister-in-law's at the Shiva after my sister-in-law died at age 36. Like that's all I could, I was just in the kitchen. I, I mean, throughout her illness, I would fly out to Portland and cook for them. And cook and cook and stock their freezer. And then after she died, uh, that was the, oh, I, I just had to keep moving because just to, to settle down and, and look square on at her loss was just um, too devastating. And I feel like that's, that was a personal situation. And I, I've had moments like that looking at the political situation or the environmental situation sometimes, mm-hmm. or sometimes it's about, um, it is, it's the despair. It's the uh, heaviness of, the weight 
of, of the situation so that that keeps me from moving. And sometimes it's the quick bird-like uh, agitated energy of, right. of, of diving. Hopefully, hopefully with your sister, um, at some point you were able to circle back and just lightly um, touch and sense what was going on inside you in your pain. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I, I, I was keenly aware of it at all times, but um, one of the things that she taught me is that, you know, at the end of her life, about three weeks before she died, she and my brother and, and, and their son came east. My family goes to the New Jersey shore every summer and she sat on the boardwalk and, you know, she just could have been, she had that very expansive vision and she, she tried as hard as she could to, to live the way that you're suggesting and to find as much joy and as much connection, even as she was dying at a very young age. And we sat on the boardwalk in Ocean City and she, her eye, she just was so hungry to watch the fullness of life um, moving by. I remember earlier that day, she had stood at the ocean's edge with her feet in the water. And, and we, we knew she was, it was terminal at this point. This was her last big trip. And she, she just felt the waves on her ankles. And, and it was very intense to watch her knowing this would be the last time she would have that sensation. And then that night we went out into the boardwalk and she just watched the parade of humanity go by. And she turned to me and said, everyone has a story. And I was just so moved by her, the empathy and the interest mm -hmm. that she had. She could have just been so self-absorbed and so referential. She so, could have gotten very bitter. Yeah. And she just... How young I am and, you know, I didn't get to live a quote-unquote full life as, as if we know what full means, as if we know what the measure is meant to be for our lifespan. Yeah. Right. And it seems to me that she really embodied that notion of finding the gift in the pain. It, she did. I mean, she... That I, one of the gifts she was able to access was the gift of being in the present moment, of really taking in the waves and the people around and, and knowing uh, this could be my last time is certainly a way to wake up to the gift. Right. Interestingly, I want to take us back to, to, to Yom Kippur, um, that this is not a part of the Kol Nidre service that I was leading. Uh, it's because it's part of the liturgy during the day. But the Unatanatokef prayer, that's the prayer that says who will live and who will die. It's the imagery of being written into the book of life. And I, I always think about that prayer as an effort to kind of flail us, to, to, to remove our skin and, so that we can feel the acuteness of the day and of our lives, uh, if Yom Kippur is actually like a mini death in the fasting and in all of the, the liturgy, so that we can open ourselves to the preciousness of this day. And, I, and so I think someone like my, my late sister-in-law, she was living with cancer for four years, so she had it. But, and I think when you were talking earlier, Amit, about that sensitivity that you've had since you were a teenager, um, that, of just, uh, that it, this isn't... Um, this isn't everyday life, but rather that systems are breaking down. Um, I, I think that we want to find that best possible balance between our openness to, to pain and, and what's going on and the preciousness within that the, and, and, and therefore the joy that can emerge. 
Yeah, and the, the preciousness, I think, is intricately wound up with uh, the themes of death and dying that you talked about for Kol Nidre and Yom Kippur in general. We, we have to face the fact that everything passes and everything eventually fades, that anybody we're close to is going to die or we're going to die, or they're going to leave us or we're going to leave them eventually. And those tragedies are not negotiable. (laughs) They're part and parcel of living on this planet. And if we can extend it out further, I would say the same thing holds at societal levels. Uh, Civilizations rise and fall. And they've been doing that for millennia. And they will continue to do so. That's very good point, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and so... You know, we may be uh, on the verge of watching a civilization slowly dying, and this won't be the last time. There were people towards the tail end of the Roman civilization who were probably watching its dissolution into, you know, what they call barbarian factions. Uh, Things didn't end. Right. They just transformed. Right. Right. And I don't think things will end here. They may transform in some really radical ways. It's My hope is that the, what they transform into will be renewed and in some ways better than the stuff we've had so far. I, I mean, that's, I try to, to take that perspective as well, that it's definitely going to look different than it did as we were growing up or, or you know, what we were led to believe. The direction, to go back to choice, the direction is at least in some ways up to us. Uh, we, we have the opportunity to... To, to, to help us as, as a collective orient toward that, which is uh, cultivating independent, interdependence and cultivating a shared future. It's a major battle, but, but the opportunity does exist. Yes. And it's, uh, there, you can come at it from so many different angles, but I think one of them has to do with are we practicing a way of living so that uh, we ourselves are treated with dignity and the people around us, uh, both our friends and family and also uh, people in our larger community are also treated with dignity. Well, that's like, I mean, we're going to wind down, but that's an interesting place to, to end, which is about the people around us. And part of the focus of this season of Hashivenu is on the importance of community, because I just, I think that that is that is the, one of the ways that Judaism has cultivated resilience is that that so much of classical Jewish teaching is about in the context of community within the mandate of a of a minyan of at least a of a quorum that there are so many um, obligations and so many uh, just uh, ways of self-understanding that are within a, a collective context. And, you know, the part of the work of liberal Judaism in the, in the modern and the postmodern era is to find the best possible balance between the individual and the community. I think that that's a really, that's a major project of the Reconstructionist movement along with other liberal denominations. Um, so maybe that we will go out with a discussion about about individual and community and and, and interdependence. Well, you know, as uh, as we were saying, I think right before we began recording for the podcast, I think that there's uh, a really profound paradox at work here, 
which is that we need community. We cannot, we can't live a single day of our life without having a vast web and network of helpers. I can't wake up in a, in a dry, warm home without knowing that there are builders who built my house and people who are supplying the, the gas that go into the pipes in my home to keep the heater going. There's this entire community at a very practical level. And then there's the community of emotional connections that when I'm down and I can pick up the phone and call a friend or uh, we can console somebody, uh, we can go to a simcha, a, a happy occasion, an event to mark you know, a milestone in someone's life that uh, we do that for each other, and that's all community. And the paradox is that while we're embedded in community, the path of our redemption, of our salvation, is also a solitary one. No one can do that piece for us. Mm-hmm. And Yom Kippur, I think, exemplifies that paradox because we're going in praying together, but each of us is searching our hearts alone. Yeah, that's a really... That's, that's very beautiful. I, I think a lot about uh, so much of our liturgy is in the collective, you know, for the sins we have committed. That, that, so that's from the High Holiday Liturgy, but, but then also... I, you know, I don't, I don't like the word sins in there. I, it's, yeah. it's always rankled me, if I might say so. How would you <laughs> I can put a word into a rabbi there. <laughs> okay. How would you translate chataim, you know, for the... How would you translate that? Um, I like I like the translation of um, missing the mark. Missing the mark, right? So that and that emerges, which, which again comes back to a personal challenge. To how do I do better? Yeah, that's really lovely. So, and that 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 that's that's um, etymologically and uh, and and theologically sound because there is a root about of shooting an arrow. So the idea of the sin that that action not striking where it's supposed to, but in fact going astray. Um, that is that not is, where one intended originally. Yeah, my concern is like whether it's in the reflective language of the high holiday liturgy or just of the daily liturgy of like we are ahava rabba ahavtanu we are loved by a great love that that risk that in the we the I gets gets lost um, uh, and so how to how to how to make certain that we do the work we don't just show up and say the words but we do the work either to get closer to the mark or to feel the love. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, so let's keep in mind that Jewish practice isn't confined to Shabbat services once a week, which, you know, those are communal activities. Um, But that Jewish practice, indeed any spiritual practice from any tradition, if you're going to be sincere in, in the path of, uh, deepening your connection to the all, the divine, uh, to the universe, to God. If you're sincere in that path, then you really need to weave it into your life. Mm-hmm. Right. You need to like bring it a lot closer into home. So it's like what you were saying about waking up and practicing gratitude. Mm-hmm. That's not a communal practice. That's, that's a practice that comes from one's own heart. That's right. And that's right. And the liturgy actually is in the singular there. Moda ani, moda ani. I, I am. Yeah. 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 Um, I just, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Amit Ravital, for this really rich conversation, some of which I, I unfolded the ways that I imagined, and some of which uh, took some turns that I didn't fully expect, um, and all of which was really satisfying and really interesting. Thank you, Amit. Likewise, it was a pleasure to be on here, and uh, uh, look forward to talking with you more. 
That would be wonderful. And for, for those of you who are listening, if you'd like to read the Devar Torah, you can find it um, on evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org. Uh, and we'll also post it on the website supporting this podcast, hashivenu.fireside.fm. Uh, Amit also has uh, a website, Ravital Home, R-A-V-I-T-A-L home.com. So you, you could uh, read some more of his writing and find some of the articles that he finds really inspirational. I am Rabbi Deborah Waxman, and you've been listening to Hashivenu, Jewish Teachings on Resilience. Hashivenu, 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 Hashiv